This is how it starts. Everyone thinking they can work with the guy, that they'll bring him around. It's like Hitler. Everyone thinking he doesn't mean what he said. Exactly. Win or lose, there's a lot of hate out there. And he knows how to tap into it. Hi, this is Peter Sagal, who you might know from my show on NPR called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And this is the first episode of the official podcast for the HBO miniseries, The Plot Against America. We will discuss each episode of the TV series in detail with the show's executive producer, Mr. David Simon. Hello, David. Hello. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about the miniseries episode by episode. We'll be talking about its adaptation, its production, its themes, its meaning with the guy who made it. This is a companion episode to part one of the HBO miniseries, The Plot Against America. So if you have not watched it, you should go watch it. We'll wait for you. Come back and we'll talk about it in great detail. In this episode... We meet the Levins, a Jewish family living in Newark, New Jersey, in the Jewish neighborhood of Wequaic, in 1940. There's Herman and Bess, father and mother, their two sons, Sandy and Philip, their cousin, Alvin, who lives with them in a fairly happy environment, in a fairly peaceful time and neighborhood. In real life, of course, the war had begun in Europe, FDR was president and was going to run for an unprecedented third term. But at the same time, there was a very strong isolationist feeling in America. They had been through World War I. They did not want to get involved in World War II. And in fact, some people were going so far as to say America first, including a very famous man of the time, Charles A. Lindbergh. That's all true. But in this television series, history changes. Let's talk a little bit about the book. It's by Philip Roth, of course, one of the great American writers. And what's interesting about the book, among many other things, is that it's written as a memoir by Philip Roth. It's about his father, whose real name was Herman Roth, who really did sell insurance. They really did live on Summit Avenue in Wequaic and Newark. But, of course, in this memoir, it's an alternative history. So what was it about the book that made you think, okay, this story needs to be told on television to a mass audience right now? That phrase, America first, actually has its origins in the 1940s with isolationist politics, which was not merely people who were pro-fascist or pro-Nazi, although it included that cohort, but even you know, large tracts of the Republican Party, you know, Taft in Ohio, the, the people who really didn't want to be involved in a second world war and who wanted to maintain strict neutrality. Those people all rallied under that banner. And Charles Lindbergh, the idea that he would be president actually has real origins, even though it didn't happen, Roosevelt was terrified that he was going to have to run against Lindbergh in 1940, that the Republicans would recruit him and that he would accept because there was no greater hero. Right. So there was a plausible moment in American history where we might have not sided with Britain early on, even before Pearl Harbor, where we might not have had Lend-Lease, where we might not, you know, at that critical moment where Britain stood alone against the Nazis, we might not have been there, Right. um, the arsenal of democracy. And Roth imagines using his own family for texture and for and for the spine of the piece, what that America would have been like if we had taken a dry run at fascism. Yeah. And yes, in 2016, arguing for the same withdrawal from the world and its affairs, arguing with the same fear of the other, polluting the construct of American life. In, in the book, it's 
the Jewish Americans who are who are trying to get America into into the war against Hitler yeah. and are conspiring with the British against American interests. In our time, in 2016, it was you know the 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 feared other was black and brown people and you know Mexican rapists and 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 Muslim terrorists and and they're all out to get you and and what we need to do is close our borders and close our minds yeah. and marginalize those people who are less American than we are. Yeah. And so the same metrics and the same fuel were, were, were guiding this political revolution that was coming out of the woodwork. And, and uh, I mean, I, I'll concede to a certain naivete on my part. I thought after the eight years of, of Obama that certain political strategies were dead, that you could no longer metastasize xenophobia and racism and achieve political victory. Yeah. You know, Obama won without white males. Right. And I thought now there is effectively a plurality of different cohorts that will vote without being motivated by fear. That was pretty naive of me. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first project you've ever done that has a, a very overt Jewish flavor to it. It's about a family of Jews who yeah. exist as Jews. Was that, after everything else you've done, The Wire, Treme, The Deuce, is this something that attracted you or scared you or? It definitely didn't scare me. All of a sudden I had uh, voices in my head from my own family history. And, and, and it's, there are some weird overlaps geographically and, and uh, demographically with, with, with Roth and his family. So now I felt completely at ease. I grew up in a suburban Jewish household in, outside of Washington, D.C. What, what intimidated me was I was adapting Philip Roth. And yeah. you know, this, this, is, this is one of the guys who's in the canon for American literature for the 20th century, and rightly so. Uh, at the point at which I encountered him, uh, which I, I met him for about an hour and a half once before he passed away to talk about this project. I'm, I'm a TV hack and I'm walking into the apartment of a guy who, you know, is basically waiting around for, for his Nobel. Right. Didn't come, but... He deserved it. Shame on them. I know. Um, but uh, I met him on the day after they gave the award to uh, Ishigura, the Remains of the Day guy. And... Uh, just because it was the day after they'd awarded it not to Roth, I felt the need to make a joke. Right. So at his door, the first thing out of my mouth is, who's this guy with your prize? Like, <laughs> I, I just couldn't help myself. And he was ready for it because he just looked at me and went, at least they didn't give it to Peter, Paul, and Mary. Because <laughs> he was still pissed about Bob Dylan. Like It was like, fine, they, at least they gave it to a guy who wrote a novel because he was still mad about Dylan a year later. So that's how I got, that's how we broke you the broke ice. You broke the ice with Philip Roth. What was yeah. it, all right, though, you're, you come, you meet Philip Roth, as you say, one of the great giants of American literature. He's probably, it was a year or so before he died, so yeah. he's 80 or something. You said, hi, Mr. Roth, I'm yeah. going to adapt your right. novel into TV. What did he have to say about that? Well, I wanted to ask him what notes he had for me. And I, I also was, was going in with uh, trying to secure in some ways some permission, if you will, to play around with some stuff that I thought needed to be addressed to make it relevant to what has just happened in 2016. So the first part is genuinely I'm soliciting what he thinks. And the second part is the chutzpah of, yeah. oh, hi, you're the great man of letters. Mm, uh, there's a third act problem here that, you know, can I play? You know, yeah. Can I play with your novel? So it was like in my head, it was fraught. And I, that was the reason I was sort of marching into the room trying to deal with, with it in any sense. Was he happy about it? Was he... Um, was he like, hey, yeah, terrific, I mean, love I mean, the wire, go for it. I mean, I listen, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm a newspaper reporter by trade. So I'm used to walking into people's living rooms where I'm not really welcome. Yes. Hey, here, he invited me in. I yeah. was already ahead of the game, you know. 
so the, the conversation went well, but I do remember that, uh, and I, this gets to the point about writing Jewish stuff, is I found myself throwing Yiddish phrases at Roth. At some point, I was talking about we we shouldn't get lost in the narish kite of, yes. of Trump and, you know, using the word narish kite. Yeah. Like, right away, I'm going, like, signaling to Roth, I was at the same dinner table. Right. I mean, obviously, you wanted his blessing. I understand that entirely. But is there anything you needed to know from him? Were you curious about yeah. anything? First of all, he wanted us to change the name from Roth. He had used, oh, the, that, yeah. he had used the names of his own family for the novel. But he, he felt, I think, because he had control of the novel, he could decide what to say and what not to say and what to show and not to show. If it was going to be attenuated further in a television show, he, he asked for a different surname. So we changed to Levin. And uh, he said... Make no mistake, they should not be orthodox. They should not be non-assimilating. Right. He wasn't looking for Williamsburg Hasids. Right. He didn't need Payas and, you know, and, and... Which is emphasized at the start of this particular episode, but absolutely. one of those guys, uh, Frumisha guys, we call him, Frumish, show up. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and I remember in the script, you actually referred to him as an outsider. This is right. not them. This is something right. that's almost exotic and weird right. to them. The reason the piece works is that these are immigrants, the children of immigrants, I should say, who are assimilating just fine. And as fast as their little feet can take them, they're becoming Americans regardless. Right. So the whole false concern of, oh my God, will they be Americans like us? If we let them in, will they be sufficiently American that they won't ruin the texture of the country? That's always a lie. Right. It's just all, it, you know, from the beginning of the know-nothings and the fear of the Irish, it's, it's been a lie almost as old as the country that these people are different than us. Right. You know, they speak a different language. They worship a different God. The, f the smell of the food coming down the hall from their apartment is just different. They're, yeah. not, they're not us. Right. Don't let them in. And that's a fear that is easily metastasized by the demagogues yeah. who want to use it. And so he, he understood rightly. I wrote a book about people who are assimilating no matter what. There is American. And, and it's something Roth said about himself, which was, I'm not a Jewish American writer. I'm an American writer. You know, I happen to be from the vernacular of this immigrant group. Right. But by the time I land in Weequake right. in, in New Jersey, I'm an American, you know, and, and I'm, I'm rock solid American and I'm not even thinking about the notion of the hyphenate in front of my name. Right. It's strange, of course, that Philip Roth, who's like the greatest Jewish American writer perhaps we've ever had, thought of himself that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, in fact, I think it's what liberated him to be blunt about, yeah. about his experiences because a lot of his fiction is very direct about and unrelenting about the good and the bad of his community. All, all of which shows up in this book and, of course, many of his other books. There are a lot of things you approached. You had to change TVs different from novels. And we'll get to some of the changes you made as we go through the episodes. But perhaps the biggest challenge, I would think, is changing the book from the first-person perspective of Philip Roth. It's written from the perspective of an adult Philip Roth looking back on his childhood. It's so suffused with his consciousness as a 10-year-old. It's right. all so much through his eyes, right. literally, like just the things he saw and observed. And I'm assuming that that's something you immediately had to grapple with. Yeah, we looked at that and said, can't sustain six hours of TV from the point of view of a 10-year-old boy. Right. You can glean all kinds of wonderment and innocence and confusion and maybe even occasional moments of, of young insight, but whole themes are going to run right by him. Plus, you, you know, in order to tell the story of America turning to fascism through the life of a family, you need to extend the reach of the family into the world. The reason the novel is so powerful is it's all from the point of view of this Levin family living room and what the family is going through and what's happening to the family. That's the spine of the piece. But that gives you the power to say something that's so important for right now, which is 
This is a book about the spectrum between resistance and complicity in a time of political upheaval and in a time where right and wrong are delivered to everybody's doorstep. Right. Like we're, we live in a time where fundamental American values are now being challenged. It's not the first time it's happened, but it's our time. And so here's this novel where he's using allegorically this moment 80 years ago where America could have gone one way or the other. And he's exploring that. And if you're a viewer of this thing and you're at all political, or you all feel any responsibility for your society, Roth is rubbing your nose in it. Right. So let's start talking about this episode in particular. It begins with the Levin family at home on Summit Avenue in Weequayoc, Newark, New Jersey. This is actually where Philip Roth grew up. And uh, I've looked at photographs of Philip Roth's childhood home. It's very much like what we see in this miniseries. Right. So I'm assuming you guys went to some length to recreate that milieu. Yeah, we did. We, I mean, we, look, we, we walked his block on Summit Avenue. It's about a block away from his school, right. from Weequayoc High School where we shot. We looked at his block. His block has too many overhead wires. Yeah. It's, it was problematic in some ways. So we found a block very similar. I have a picture of the cast of the family. After we finished shooting one night, we all walked over there and took a picture in front of his house. Yeah. And I know Roth himself actually went back to his house and asked the people living there if he could walk through it when he was working on this novel. He wanted to reconnoiter his past. Minky Spiro was the director of this episode as well as the next two, and we spoke to her about what it was like to recreate 1940 New Jersey. There's something wonderfully challenging about being given the task to set up the show, because when you have to create 1940 Newark in the 21st century in 2019, it's almost impossible to find anywhere that is down tools, let's just go for it and film. Everything has to be adapted, amended, dealt with in post, you name it. But what was important to me was to believe that this street was our hero street of Summit Avenue. Start from a place of truth and then do what you need to do to make a wonderful piece of drama. Yeah, we very much tried to imbue the piece with what we could glean from the real. Uh, You mentioned the cast. Many of them, not all of them, are Jewish. Was that a concern when you cast the show, that you wanted Jews to play Jews? Initially, I wanted to stock this thing so full of Jews, it was going to be, you know, it was going (laughs) to feel like the Exodus marching into New Jersey. (laughs) Not just cast, but department heads, you know. It's like I I just had it. I imagined that I wanted to imbue it with something that felt intensely cultural. And the one thing that I discovered in some beautiful way, which is that if you're anything, if you're Jewish, if you're Italian, if you're Irish, whatever you are, you often think that you're living a unique immigrant yeah. or post-immigrant experience in America and that your people had to leave, you know, we're getting the crap kicked out of them somewhere on the planet, managed to wash up here, managed to scratch and claw, and that it's somehow a unique story. Right. So at some point, I'm looking for the best people I can get and- Yes, Winona Ryder is half Jewish and and very much identifies with her Jewishness. And uh, Caleb, playing the older son, is Jewish. Morgan is is half Jewish. Morgan Spector, who plays the uh, Herman. But then we get to Zoe Kazan. And, you know, I said, you should read this book. And I was working with her on Deuce. And I said, I think you can do this. I think you are best. And uh, she said, you know I'm not Jewish. And I said, well, what are you? And she said, well, I'm... I'm Greek, but, you know, we're, we're Turkish Greek. We lived in Turkey. I was like, what's more Cossack than that? Come on. <laughs> like, you are, you, you're like more Jewish than Jewish if that's, if that's your background. You'll be fine. Yeah. And the same thing with Anthony, Anthony Boyle's playing the nephew Alvin. He's, he's Irish. I'm like, right. well, okay. 
loquacious, and you can carry a grudge. That's my version of the Irish. Yeah. You know, so it's like you're, you already have to. And then he goes, and I'm from Belfast and Catholic. I'm like, you're Jewish. You're Jewish. You, and, and, and then we get to, to Turo. Right. You know. Who is, by this point, an honorary uh, yeah, Jew. Yeah. I mean, he's- Barton Burfer, Fink. Barton Fink, Herbie Stample, Bernie Birnbaum, Primo Levi. Right. You know, the fact that he had not yet played a rabbi is just an accident of history. We could have we had a bar mitzvah for him. At the end of, <laughs> yeah. He had enough liturgy. That, I mean, he was- I, know, I think doing Barton Fink counts as a bar mitzvah. Yeah, he's 100% Sicilian, and so what? Like, in some ways, m- too much can be made about the uniqueness of anybody. Yeah. We're all Americans. How much of the milieu you created for the show was based on your own upbringing? You said you lived in a suburb, I'm assuming, outside Washington. I'm assuming you also lived, as the Levins do in Wequaic, around a lot of other Jews. Yeah. I mean, I, I lived in a neighborhood that was probably half Jewish, yeah. um, right over the D.C. line. But the earlier part of my generation, my brother and sister who were older than me, they grew up in Rockaway. Very Jewish. Right. Very Jewish. My, my grandparents ran rooming houses in the summer. And before then, my, on my father's side of the family, he was from, he was from an area of Jersey City where we shot. The, the scout van pulled up to the area that we were going to use for downtown Weequick, for the, the Jewish section, uh, in front of these Art Deco buildings on what, was, what is now Martin Luther King Boulevard, but what was then Jackson Avenue. And as soon as I saw Martin Luther King Boulevard, I said, are we near Stegman Street? And they said, yeah, it's three blocks this way. And I walked down to where my grandparents' store was, where my dad grew up in the apartment right around the corner. My grandparents' store is now a Boost Mobile store. <laughs> I stood out front of it and go, I can't believe I've made a big circle because we're about to shoot on this street. That's amazing. So when we finally built the interior as a set of the, of the Levin apartment, I walked the set and I was looking for not really my 1960s upbringing yeah. in, in Silver Spring, Maryland. I was looking for my grandparents' homes and what I remembered of Rockaway and what I'd seen in pictures and, and, and what my dad... So I was looking for like what's in the bookcase... Where are the pictures on the wall? You know, where are the, the Jewish artifacts? Where are the, the American bric-a-brac that has nothing to do with Judaism that is sort of acquired? Right. I was really recreating things that I could palpably remember as being part of my, my grandparents' world, the, right. the, the homes in which my father grew up and where my mother grew up. And in fact, on the walls, I, I keep seeing them in all the shots, or virtually all of them are photographs of my extended family. Really? From, yeah. The, it's, did you just grab them off the shelves? Did you have them made uh, for the show? I have. I'm one of those guys who collects old, like I, I'm, I've done the ancestry. You know, I have all the photos. And so I went through them and I found the ones that were all 1942 or earlier and felt like they could be the Levens. And, and uh, the other person who joined me in that was Winona Ryder. The bar mitzvah picture of her father huh. uh, is on the wall uh, on, in, in the stairwell and her grandfather was in the hallway. So huh. she had she had the same vibe of like, you know, let's get some of the DNA in here. Okay, everybody start going through the episode searching and freezing. You can find Winona Ryder's grandfather. So let's start working through the episode. There's a crisis for the family, the Levins, almost as soon as we meet them. Herman, the father, he's been offered a promotion which would require him to move the family out of their predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Newark and into the not-Jewish town of Union, New Jersey, which he thinks is a great thing, but this brings up a different reaction in his wife, Bess. I was the only Jew in my class. I had no friends. People would walk by our apartment and point and say, that's where the Jews live. It was something that had to be told to everyone. It wasn't that I was mistreated. 
I was just ignored and alone. I don't want that for them. What Bess is talking about in that in that moment is I don't want to have my kids growing up where they feel as if they are unique and vulnerable because they're unique. Because that can be fairly brutalizing in its own way. Yeah. Particularly in an America that had not yet completely acclimated to the Jewish diaspora. Yeah, there know? there was a significant amount of institutional anti-Semitism Absolutely. in America at the time. Absolutely. There were, there were quotas at the schools. There were, you know, restricted clubs there was, and social there was, organizations. There was, there was a quota in immigration from, yeah. tw- from 24 on. You were told to stay among your kind. So here was this moment where, yes, the country is ostensibly wide open. And that tug of war is going on in that conversation between Herman, who feels as if he can now venture out. He feels strong enough to venture out into a neighborhood where oh, maybe maybe we won't be either in the majority or, yeah. or, or comfortably, you know, a comfortable plurality of Jews. Yeah. So what? Yeah. He's ready to be even more American than she is at that point. Yeah. But they're on a continuum. And and there's a you know their children will be further along and their, yeah. their children's children may you know what's interesting is is Herman is uh, uh, resistant to this idea that they can't move to Union and be comfortable and happy, and then of course they see that beer garden of these very happy German Americans uh, celebrating, and he suddenly realizes, no, this isn't the place for them. And so it does seem as if he has some sense of vulnerability, yeah. of wanting to be among his own people. Herman's character is a stubborn one. And I actually think he has that encounter and he's not yet writing off Union. He's saying to himself, you know, they're sons of bitches, but I still want that house. And it requires best to say to him, this this is unsustainable. From the point of view of our children, this is not what we want. And best in her quiet way uh, is is the real rock in the family. Do you think that when Herman decides to turn down the promotion, uh, goes into New York and meets the big boss. Do you think he's doing that simply because he wants to please his wife and make his wife happy in, in the best way? It's one of the wonderful things about the book that translates to the miniseries is the strength and quality of their marriage. marriage yeah, it really. I think so. I think if he was left to his own devices, he'd take it and he'd bull through. He's a stubborn man and, and a relentlessly brave man with his own emotions. Yeah. There's another character and member of the family that we meet, and that's cousin Alvin Levin. He is the son of the now deceased brother of Herman. Herman feels responsibility for him, so he lives with them, but there's a lot of tension between them. And Alvin seems to be a different kind of guy. Alvin seems to have, to put it mildly, a chip on his shoulder. Alvin seems to be rebellious against everybody. But he has his own code, and that will come into play a lot. Do you think Alvin represents a, a different kind of coping as a Jewish American, or he's just a different kind of guy? I mean, Alvin has some flaws, some deep-seated rage, maybe the, the flaws of an orphan, you know, of somebody who has been on their own emotionally for a long period of time. But he's incredibly smart, yeah. if not if not classically educated. And he perceives political reality way faster than Herman. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's somebody who understands power dynamics. And in, in a weird way, I recognized it. And maybe I strained some of my own dynamic with my father through it because my father was a very, he, he could be institutional in a very healthy way for a time where American institutions didn't devour those yeah. people it was supposed to, you know, he, he worked for a, a, a nonprofit Jewish service organization as a public relations director. And it, he worked in a time where, you know, you, you worked 30 years for the same company and they gave you a retirement dinner and a gold watch and a good pension. And uh, he wasn't part of the gig economy. Right. 
you know, I was post-Vietnam, post-Watergate newspaper reporter, you know, don't trust anything. You know, any, anyone tells you anything, you don't trust it. So that whole notion of, I don't know, Dad, you don't see the world as it, as it still is. Right. I, I, I had that dynamic a little bit with my dad, not to the volatile extent of yes. Alvin and, and Herman, but, you know, there is a clarity to the way Alvin sees the world as it's taking this turn towards fascism that he's faster yeah. than, than Herman, and that creates incredible tension. Speaking of the turn toward fascism, we need to talk about the moment where history changes, where we introduce the world that we are now going to branch off into. And to me, that moment comes when I think it's Sandy hears the sound of the airplane, that airplane flying yeah. into Long Island, I think it was. It turns out it's Lucky Lindy flying along, and that's when things start to change. And we hear Lindbergh delivering a speech in the radio, which was a real speech that he delivered. It's called by historians the Des Moines speech. And in that speech, he blamed the Jews, American Jews, for maneuvering the U.S. into the World War. The three most important groups are the British, the Jewish people, and the Roosevelt administration. Yes. All of these groups have their reasons for wanting America in this war. But are they what Americans should want? You hear? It's calling us war agitators. Listen to that crowd. He's feeding them raw meat. We cannot allow the natural passions and prejudices of other peoples. Other people? Us and them? Our interests? We're Americans, you fascist son of a bitch! Herman, quiet, just listen. Lousy traitor. What's amazing, if you read that speech, he doesn't express any overt animus toward Jews. He doesn't say they're filthy. It's, it's not Hitlerian language. But he basically says, I don't blame the Jews for wanting what's best for them. That's their right. Of course, they'll do that. But we Americans should not let ourselves be right. manipulated for their agenda. Right. It's a, it actually has some subtle boundaries that could inoculate somebody from the charge of anti-Semitism, saying you're less attuned to what America needs and what America deserves because you have your own interests. Right. And they're apart from your, Amer your, your, your interests as they should be if you were complete Americans. That's the backhand of that. Yeah. It's been done throughout history of like, if you were more American and less of your hyphenate, you would realize, for example, that the civil rights movement is being used by leftists yes. and outside agitators and communists and you know everyone, including Khrushchev, to demean and hurt your country. Right. So why do you keep advocating for civil rights right. when you're, it puts you on the side? Like, don't you understand you're less American than the people who just shut up yeah. and allow this to go? Like, don't you realize your self-interest as an African-American is interfering with your ability to be as American as I am? And that, that's the subtle backhand of the, of the racialist notion of what he's doing in Des Moines, which is saying, we can't trust our Jewish American citizens to see the world as it is because, hey, they're Jewish. They're Jewish and they have their own agenda. They, they're more interested right. in the welfare of their own right. people like anybody would right. be. The idea that they're, they're looking at Hitler and saying, this man is an affront to humanity as a whole. Yeah. And what he does to the Jews is indicative of what he's about to do. He's about to turn all of Europe into a charnel house right. and he's about to go to places of barbarity that we haven't known yet in terms of the sheer weight of 20th century technology brought to bear on crimes against humanity. He's about to do things that are astonishing. Yeah. And he's said so. And he's demonstrating every day his capacity for war making and brutality. And, I, and we see that. And we're on the right side of history. Well, no, you're on the Jewish side. Right. Herman and 
Alvin have different reactions to the speech. Herman is like this anti-Semitic son of a bitch, but don't worry, FDR's president, this guy is just a Nazi, don't worry about him. Herman has faith, it seems, like this is a fringe view. This is hateful and stupid, but there will be no impact. It'll have no effect. Alvin is less sanguine. He, and this is how the episode ends, he decides to take some action. After one of his friends over at the candy store is beat up, he and his friends get into a car, go back to Union and find one. The sequence not in the book. Yes, exactly. And that's (laughs) what I wanted to add. That's, uh, there are things that'll happen later that this is maybe a prelude for, but I did want to ask you why you added that action, that uh, confrontation, that violence at the end of this opening episode. For a couple of reasons, one of which is I felt like at the end of the first episode, we needed to presage where the country was headed, the divisiveness of what what was being set in motion in terms of the uh, the slow motion civil war in America over who we are and, and how we're going to behave and how we're going to respond to the threat of fascism or not respond or embrace it. And um, in some respects, uh, I needed to reference that at the end of the first episode and, and deliver some sort of preamble to where, where the piece is going. It also sets Alvin apart as somebody who is willing to fight. Whatever the resistance is, wherever it is, that's the best part of Alvin. He's got a lot of flaws and he's got a lot of, there's a lot of ugly in yeah. there too, but uh, he is willing to fight. And so it delivered that in a, in a very basic way. But mostly what I did, and, and we, we intercut it with what was happening in the world as a whole. It's, right. it's also allegorical for the world now struggling to come to terms with what the world is going to be in 1940. Yeah. It really was a worldwide imbroglio between two fundamentally different ideas. 1940 is only a couple years away from the famous Munich conference where Europe decided that it'd be better just to get along with Hitler and right. everything will work out if we just stay at peace. Right. Even though in 1940, Europe's now at war. There was like, should we fight them? Should we let them fight each other? Should we stay neutral? Right. And and that's represented in these And most things. of the country was isolationist in yeah. 1940. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, FDR, in order to get elected, had to promise, I think his phrase was, I won't send American, American boys, boys to fight right. in European wars. He right. had to adopt an isolationist line, right. even though, as we know, that was not particularly his view. The attitude that Herman seems to have as we get to the end of the episode is a phrase that Sinclair Lewis uses the title of his book about uh, fascism arising in America, which is it can't happen here. That he seems to have this faith that this is America. This is, and he says this many times in different ways in the course of the series. This is America. This is a democracy. This is our country. This is not Europe. We are not fascist. This is not going to happen here. We will reject this, I don't know, bacillus, this infection of fascism. And he seems to have real faith that that's the case. Alvin doesn't seem so sure. Well, you know, if you were concerned about some of the messages that were getting traction in 2016, I think we all remember that notion of, is the country really going to go in this way? If you live in New York or LA or San Francisco, if you're riding the crest of the new pluralistic America, you're amazed at the rise of Donald Trump, that this stuff sells anywhere. But that's the problem. There's been a schism in America and some portion of the country is not experiencing the same future. Yeah. That's to be criticized. The fact that we've only brought a certain portion of our, of our, of our, of our nation forward into a moment that is inevitable. Right. One thing we should touch on because it's relevant to this is the media environment, which comes up again and again in the show. Herman is constantly going to the movie theater to see the newsreels, which is what they had instead of cable TV. You had to get up, go down the street. Two days late. Two days late, but you got to see these films coming back from Europe of what was going on. And then, of course, the radio and uh, Walter Winchell, who, again, a very real person, a Jew, who was the most dominant media figure perhaps of the era. 
who had his Sunday night show, the Jurgens Lotion sponsor. It was something to be a radio personality back then. Yeah, yeah. and he yeah. was the greatest of the great. Winchell's interesting because in the Rothian pantheon of this book, he, he he's a hero. He, yeah. he he's he's unrelentingly. He has, he has perfect clarity about what Lindbergh is and what he represents and what the demagogic impulse is on the part of um, you know, some portion of America and, and, and what we're susceptible to. And he speaks right to it, it's often without filter. He makes enemies by telling the truth. It's real truth to power stuff. But historically, that was where Winchell was right. He was anti-America Firster and anti-Lindbergh. And you know, in, in some later incarnation, he was completely susceptible to McCarthyism yeah. and, and, a, and a savage turn to the right. He was um, a great advocate for Hoover's excesses and, and for building up FBI the, and the, the surveillance the, the, state. The, the surveillance state. Uh, you know, he was, he has a, he's a very complicated man, Winchell. Yeah. But um, here he's a hero and, uh, and he features throughout the piece as being an antagonist of Lindbergh. Yeah. There are images that we return to again and again of these people sitting in their house in Summit Avenue and the world coming through their radio or through the newsreel, and it's increasingly frightening, which, again, is a very familiar feeling. Right. The episode ends with Charles A. Lindbergh announcing that he will, in fact, run for president and the characters on Summit Avenue believing, well, that can't possibly come to fruition and we will leave them there worrying what is going to happen next we will be back next week with another deep dive into part two of the plot against america it will air next monday 9 p.m eastern on hbo i'm of course peter sagel you can hear me in the meantime on npr's wait wait don't tell me and i have been absolutely honored to sit here and have a conversation with mr david simon thank you david you. This podcast was produced by HBO in conjunction with Pineapple Street Studios. Our team at Pineapple Street Studios includes executive producers Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Barry Finkel. This episode's lead producer is Emmanuel Hapsis. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore. Post-producing and mixing is by Elliot Adler, and our editor is Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. You can listen to this podcast again and again if you like. You can review and rate it via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, the HBO apps, or anywhere else you might get your podcasts. Until next time, this is Peter Sagal thanking you, thanking David Simon, and we'll talk to you next week. You know, you can't do the entertainment industry without ball juice. It's true. You need at least 40%. <laughs>